Joining us today is Mr. Howard Ross. He is considered one of the world's thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. Howard, can you kind of explain for some people who think, you know, why does only black lives matter? Um, And then they think all lives matter. So what is the difference between and what is the importance of supporting black lives matter? Sure. Well, I think that, you know, first of all, I think that in in the language that you just used, we can see how people see it differently, because I I often say to people, one of the challenges we have with those three words is that we're not really reacting to three words. We're reacting to four words, but the fourth word is invisible and it's different for the two sides, because Mm -hmm. one side does see it as black lives matter, too. And another side sees it as only black lives matter, depending upon the perspective you come from. For me, it comes down to this. You're in the emergency room. A patient comes in. They fell and they broke their right arm. You don't put a cast on both arms, right? right. You, 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 you put a cast on the arm that needs support. You put a cast on the arm that's broken. You know, um, the fire department comes into a neighborhood and one house is burning. They don't put the water cannon on all the houses in the neighborhood. They put the cannon on the house that's burning because, because we address the place where the, the challenges are. And I think when we look at... Um, and when we look at the African-American experience today um, in the United States, when we look at it historically, I mean, uh, the historical experience is part of it, but it's also, um, it's also the current experience that we know that African-Americans, just as an example, um, experience that we know that um, statistically, um, it's just not the same experience. I mean, we can look through any number of statistics. We can know that black women die three times more often given birth, that that um, that uh, black men and women live shorter lifespans than whites, that uh, the percentage of high school students who graduate on time is different, that the uh, percentage of college students, you know, I mean, you could go through, I can go through 50 different statistics. Black unemployment is twice, twice what white unemployment is generally. That are only four black CEOs out of 500 in the Fortune 500. You know, so we know that there's a differential impact there. And if we know that there's a differential impact, then what what people are saying is, let's address that problem. Let's say, you know, yes, of course, all lives matter, but but black lives matter too, not just white lives matter. And and the other thing that people have to realize is even the language has to be seen in a historical perspective, mm-hmm. because even the word all historically in the United States has been racially motivated. For example, um, uh, you remember in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, but it didn't mean all men. It meant all white men. Or at the end of our Pledge of Allegiance, it said liberty and justice for all, but for 350 or 60 years of our society, legally, that didn't mean all. So so this language really, um, it's important for us to recognize that this language has history to it. And what African-Americans are saying is, you know, we, we have a history of being treated unfairly by this society, being abused by this society, being killed, maimed, raped, um, all this stuff in our society. What we're saying is we want people to pay attention to the fact that our lives matter too. Not just white lives matter, our lives matter too. And and I think given anybody who, who really pays attention to the history of the United States, that makes perfect sense. Now, one of the challenges, of course, is there's just a lot of misinformation out there. And I hear from people sometimes, white folks will say, well, you know, Black people get all the advantages these days. And, and, and of course, we can look statistically and know that that's not true because, right. as I said, for example, only four of the Fortune 500 CEOs are, are black. But when you've been in a power position, when you've had advantages your whole life and people try to equalize it, it feels like something's being taken away from you because you're used to that. You know, that's the common experience you've had of having all those benefits. And so that's where this whole issue of privilege comes in. You know, that, that, um, that, you know, an, an example that I like to give, you know, is I've got four sons 
And um, all of them, the youngest is 26, so they've all gone through getting a driver's license. And I never had to even think about sitting with my sons when they got their driver's license and talk to them about how to keep themselves alive if a police officer stopped them. And yet every African-American parent that I know um, has had that, ex- that conversation, that driving while black conversation with their children. That's a privilege that I have here, not having to prove myself like you do as a female physician. You know, if I were a male physician, I'm not. My mother wanted me to be, by the way. <laughs> um, but um, that if I were if I were a physician, I was male. I would have to prove myself less because I wouldn't have to put out. The, I wouldn't have to remind people that I should have a doctor in front of my name. You know, all those kinds of things. So, so one of the reasons I think that people react so strongly and negatively to the concept of privilege is because we sometimes misuse privilege and describe it as impossible. Like you're exhibiting privilege and you're exhibiting privilege, privilege, as opposed to how we understand it from a systemic standpoint. That we're all raised in this culture, and you may demonstrate privilege as a white male, for example, without even realizing you're doing it, because that's what you were taught to do. And and that's why I said before to remove this guilt and shame aspect of it, and instead get people to look at the dynamic and take responsibility for it. Yeah, I I love that um, how you explain that and the fact that. Um, you know, I think even Justice um, um, RBG had said that, you know, we the people was the beginning of the Constitution. Um, and it has evolved mm-hmm. over time is who is we the people? Um, and I think that's part of that's what right. implicit bias training is all about, is about evolving. Um, you know, you have uh, taught in, you know, hundreds of Fortune 500 companies and major institutions and um, healthcare, government, nonprofit sectors, et cetera, and, and major universities, uh, um, you know, the top universities in the world. Uh, and it's like, yes. yet with all of the um, knowledge that you have around this subject, it must be frustrating that, that there's still this sense of tribalism that's occurring um, and that, you know, people are deleting Facebook friends or avoiding fa- uh, family members just because they don't agree with them or they feel threatened. Um, and and I think it's very unfortunate that rather than looking at things as evolving or learning and that we're all in this together and that we can gain things from each other. I mean, I'm sure you have plenty of statistics about the competitive advantage a company has when they do embrace diversity and inclusion um, compared to companies that don't. It's like, uh, how do you how do you make it stick for people? Or is it just a, a ongoing learning that you just have to keep working at? Well, no, I mean, I think that's a piece of it. I think awareness is important and, and helping people understand these concepts is important. I think, you know, my experience has been that very few people wake up in the morning and wring their hands and say, how can I suppress women, people of color today? You know, there are some, of course, we know, but most people just get up and do their jobs and they don't even realize the blind spots that they have. And that's why one of the things, in addition to education, because, you know, you could do the best education in the world and you can experience unconscious bias training that's profound and earth shattering and all that. But if then you don't do it for performance review for four months from now, what are the chances you're going to remember it, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a number of things that we found that helps build this into our organizational cultures to make it performative. So for example, um, let's say you have really good education. And as I said before, the best education that research shows works is when you teach people to understand how they think and how they're making these decisions so that they can make decisions consistent with their own values. And then after that, then to use um, what in, in behavioral economics we call nudging or priming techniques. And that is, let's say you've got that performance review four months from now. And before you do that, you're given a handout that's maybe one or two pages. And it just says, remember, when you go into performance review, unconscious bias can be triggered. Here are four or five things to think about that might help you mitigate that. 
And then it brings the training right back to that moment, you know? And so, so building in those kinds of priming techniques is really helpful and important. The third thing is that we can look at structures and systems we have. And, and, you know, for example, in the, in the appendix of my book, Everyday Bias, there's 17 pages of ways that we can look at our talent management processes and change them in ways that can impact um, that can make them more bias resistant. A great example of this that most of our listeners probably know about is the way they now audition symphony orchestra, musicians for symphony orchestra. So it used to be um, as late as 1980, less than 10% of the people in symphony orchestras around the United States were women. Now that number is over 40%. Well, what happened was they changed the way they auditioned people. They started to have people coming in standing behind, she- behind um, shields and walking on rugs. You couldn't hear high heel shoes. People with musicians would come in and the people who were listening were on the other side of the shield and all they could hear was the music. They couldn't hear, see the musician. And so all of a sudden we were auditioning the music rather than the musician and lo and behold, more and more women got chosen. By the way, that was the experiment that led to The Voice on TV for anybody who's a fan of that show. The fourth aspect is that how do we track what's happening in our organization and create accountability systems to let us know where the breakdowns occur. So often in organizations, the only system we have is how many are there. And that's, that's, I mean, it's important to know that, but it's not really helpful because it doesn't really help us know why, you know, why do we have a breakdown in this particular area? So let's say, for example, I'll use an example of one of the um, companies in the financial industry that I worked with for many years, because they use this methodology. They, they had a goal of having 40% female hires, which was a real breakthrough for them, mm-hmm. given their organization and the industry they're in. And so they created a batch of metrics, four different metrics. The first was what percentage of people apply for jobs, what percentage of women apply for jobs. The second was what percentage are offered the jobs. The third was what percentage accept the jobs. And the fourth was what percentage are successful after six months. Okay. And so let's say their goal is 40%. Let's say only 25% apply for jobs. Well, now they know they need to spread the net wider. They've got to get out there and find the talent because it's not coming in. Let's say, or or maybe that talent's not out there. In in engineering, for example, there's still, I think only 25% of the people graduating from engineering schools are women. So if you set a 40% goal, you're going to fail. So maybe you need to readjust your goal based on the information, but at least you've got the data, right? But let's say you get that up to 40%, but only 25% are offered jobs. Well, likely one of two things is happening. Either you're getting the wrong people to apply or there's something differential happening in your interviewing process. Let's say 40% are offered the jobs and only 20% accept the jobs. Well, more than likely something is turning women off in the interviewing process. And maybe you, that's the time when you go to your, your women's ERG or your gender equity ERG and you have them look at your process and see if there's something you're missing that might be turning women off. Like, what's the place you take people for dinner? Is it a place that, that's got you know, waitresses with low-cut dresses or you know that sort of a thing? Um, so let's say 40% accept the jobs but only 25% are successful after six months. And by the way, I often tell my client, I don't care who you hire. If they're not successful after six months, it's a waste of your time and theirs and money. Um, let's say only 25% are successful. Now you know, we need to look at what's happening in the culture and as people are brought in and you know, on the job training and mentoring and support. But the point is, you could, that's just one example, but you could see this allows us to get really granular. We're seeing where the breakdown is in the system that we can then correct. How does shining the flashlight on yourself improve your life and what like kind of what is in it for individuals to um, actually obtain implicit bias training every human being that i know and i'm sure this is true for the people who are listening um, we have all had one of those moments that we weren't our best selves you know when we lost our temper with somebody we overreacted to something and sometimes we get embarrassed or ashamed about that if we're smart we apologize for it and we move on um 
but it's not an unusual human experience. And, and I think one of the real values of learning about implicit bias is that it helps us live according to our own values. Um, it helps us be our better selves, because if we're thoughtful about the decisions we make, um, if we're conscious about the decisions make, that we make, we're going to make decisions that we can feel good about, as well as the, as well as the people who are affected by those decisions. In your course, you talked about uh, interrupting bias, and some of the people that can interrupt are people of privilege. So I'll give you an example. So That's right. I was at the homeless shelter with my resident, and it was a white male resident. And like I said, it always happens to me. Everyone calls me nurse or doctor or student or whatever. I mean, they don't call me yeah. doctor. They call me everything but doctor. Um, and we were there with one right. of the patients. Um, and he said, you are, you are the most lovely nurse I've ever met, you know, whatever he was saying. And my resident actually um, stood up and said, you know what? She's actually our, our physician. She's the doctor. She's the one in charge. So he kind of handed that authority back to me without me having to say anything. So I think when you're in a situation like that, let's say as yeah. a nurse or a physician or um, a family member, you're seeing someone be slighted in some way. Um, yeah. Rather than waiting for that person to stick up for themselves, like you can say something and it also it tends to be received better when it comes from somebody else than from the individual. It's really important for us to speak out when we see things like that. Um, I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that um, when we do that aggressively, like attacking the person who's the source of the bias, it, it rarely works out um, because people will immediately get defensive. Um, but I do think that <clears throat> there are ways, at least at the beginning, that we can um, you know, bring it to people's attention that they, that, you know, gee, didn't, didn't I hear you say something different to somebody else? Or can you explain to me why you said this to them and you're saying this to me or, um, or, um, it feels like you're making a certain assumption about something. Am I correct in, in, in hearing it the way you're saying it? And, you know, so in other words, you, you, you or, and to just say, look, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not saying you have any intention about this, but, but that felt a little bit dismissive to me. Um, so, you know, using what, you know, in, in feedback, we call it I statements. You know, when we, when we talk about people just using I statements and rather than immediately attacking somebody to blame them. Now, if, if the response you get is don't be so sensitive, then go for it. <laughs> you know, then feel free to go for it. But at, I always encourage people to at least, at least give people a chance to um, to respond in a way that that saves their dignity and gives them a chance to really hear it. And we know that when people are blamed and shamed, they automatically get into a defensive response, and that rarely ends up working out well. Thank you again, Howard. Till the next time. Thanks for joining us on the Beaumont House Call. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.